Good evening and welcome again to our Bible study series in the book of Acts. We are eventually hoping to cover the entire 28 chapters of this amazing book in the New Testament. Uh, we are currently in part 6 of a 12-part series. And as always, I mentioned the notes and recordings for all of these uh past, present, and ultimately future studies will be found in several different ways, either at our website, new-life-ministries.org, or you can go to mixlr.com and listen live online on Wednesday nights at 7.30, and also the recordings of all of the studies are stored there, automatically recorded and stored there. So lots of ways that you can follow along with us, and even if you can't join us live at 7.30 on Wednesday, you can always come back later at your convenience and catch up on any of the parts that you've missed. Um, we are in part six, and we're hoping to finish part six tonight and begin to move into part seven next time. Uh, if you're following along in the notes, we are going to be starting tonight on page 101 of the notes. But let me give a little bit of background and fill in a few details before we do that. We, of course, uh, in this part, have been looking at Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 9, Acts 8, we saw how great persecution broke out. Uh, it forced the disciples to scatter, and they went preaching the word, and that was used to launch the gospel throughout Judea and into Samaria. Philip had an amazing ministry in Samaria, and then we sort of shift gears in chapter 9, and we begin to hear more and more about this man, Saul of Tarsus, better known to us now as Paul the Apostle. But how God met this man on his way to Damascus to persecute the Christians there, to arrest them, possibly even to kill some of them, and certainly to drag them back to Jerusalem to uh, put into jail. Um, I want to mention something, and we're going to talk about this more in the next few sessions. This place where Paul was headed, Damascus, is a part of what at that time was the Roman province of Syria. And... By no coincidence, the Gentile church will eventually have its central headquarters in Syria, in another place called Antioch. Antioch, Syria, would become sort of the main hub of the Gentile churches and the Gentile ministry. And isn't it interesting that we also hear so much about Syria in the news now, modern Syria has been a war zone for uh, several 
years now, more than several years actually, and such a place of death and disaster and destruction, and what the enemy has done to some of these places that we're reading about in the book of Acts that were once major Christian centers. We need to pray. We need to pray for these places that God once again restores and raises up his church in these places where it was once so prominent and so glorious. And of course, the Jewish converts who were in Damascus knew that Saul of Tarsus was on his way with arrest warrants to lock them up and to persecute them. And as we've already seen, and we're not going to go through all this again, of course, Saul has his encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, and everything changes. It was a game changer. He went from being number one persecutor of the church to being the champion of Jesus Christ and his gospel. And we have some final details that are given to us here in Acts 9 as we bring this sixth part to its conclusion. And last time we saw how after his encounter with Jesus, Saul was blind from the brightness of the glory that he saw for three days and three nights. And he spent those three days and three nights in total darkness, not eating, not drinking, but praying. And God revealed to him that he was sending a man named Ananias to him who would pray for him and his sight would be restored. And of course, Ananias was called by God. He obeyed the Lord and went to visit Saul. And of course, he did a few extra things that were not explicitly stated in the Lord Jesus' commands, but he would have done these by instinct because this was part of the gospel. Not only did he lay hands on Saul for his sight to be restored, but he baptized him in water and he prayed for him to receive the Holy Spirit. And he delivered to Saul very important instructions that Ananias had received from the Lord Jesus Christ to give to Paul, to give to Saul. And we emphasized that the Holy Spirit could have clearly communicated all these things directly to Paul, but he didn't do it that way. He chose to use this disciple named Ananias. We don't know much else about him. And just an ordinary disciple like you and me. And God uses him to pray for this mighty apostle to be, Paul the Apostle, for him to be able to see, for him to be saved, baptized, and filled with the Holy Spirit. What a great honor. And we read about little insignificant disciples of Jesus that have been the ones who led the Billy Grahams or the D.L. Moody's or you can fill in the blank, 
these great Christian ministers that were brought to Christ very often through an unknown shoe salesman in the case of D.L. Moody. I don't even know what the guy's name was, but we all know who D.L. Moody is. And you never know how God wants to use you. Maybe you're not called to be an apostle, but who knows? You might lead uh, a man to Christ who is to become a great apostle. So Ananias was sent to minister to Saul, the future Apostle Paul. And we pick it up now in Acts 9, from verse 19, down to the end of the chapter. Well, no, sorry about that. Down to verse 31. Um, There's one last segment in Acts 9 where we totally shift gears again from... Paul, back to Peter. But let's finish up first with this final section on Saul of Tarsus, reading from Acts 9 and verse 19, all the way down to verse 31. And again, if you're following in the outline, we're on page 101. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul, on his journey, had seen the Lord, and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus." So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. So, immediately after the experience that we've just been studying these past two weeks, that Saul had, his encounter with Christ, his 
three days of total blindness, his being prayed for by Ananias, taking water baptism, being filled with the Holy Spirit, all that happened, and then within days, it says Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus, and I love the next two words, at once. Pay close attention to those words. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. You know, sometimes we think, oh, I need to be in the church for a couple of years. I need to learn all the Bible studies and doctrines, and, you know, I need to go through formal training before I can start to try to share Christ with anybody. Says who? Where do we ever get that in the Bible? What we see is just the opposite. When people met the Lord, they immediately had to go out and tell other people about the Christ that they had just met. Yeah, they might not have been full-blown, you know, seminary theologians, and that may be a good thing, but they were able to go out and do what the book of Acts has been talking about ever since chapter 1. Just be a witness of what you've seen and heard and experienced. Tell other people what you experienced. Saul had an incredible experience with Christ. And that experience had already convinced him that Jesus is the Son of God. <clears throat> if that's all he knew, he could not sit at home and keep quiet. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, of course, Saul knew the Old Testament scriptures. That's true. He was very well versed in Old Testament theology. And no doubt, now that he had the Holy Spirit, all that stuff was opening up to him. God started to reveal to him Christ in all of those Old Testament types and shadows, the Passover, the sacrifices, the tabernacle, Abraham and Isaac, and so many other things he began to understand. But we need to pay close attention to these two words, at once. He didn't delay. He didn't sit around wondering, should I talk to people about Jesus or not? Maybe I better wait a couple years until I'm, you know, better equipped to do this. No. At once. He couldn't sit still. He had to tell others about Jesus Christ. There's a song, uh, I heard years ago, maybe you've heard about it, gotta tell somebody. Man, when you've experienced the grace of God, you can't sit on it. You gotta go tell somebody what you've experienced. And that's what's happening here. Saul wasted no time. He had a clear call from God. We read that earlier in the chapter. And we're going to see very quickly another part of that already coming true, he was also told that he was 
God's chosen instrument to carry his name before the Gentiles, the kings, the people of Israel, but he was also told how much he must suffer for my name. That's going to happen immediately also. As soon as Saul starts preaching Christ, he's now on the receiving end of persecution, of death threats, and that would be the story for the rest of the book of Acts. He would suffer many things for the Lord Jesus Christ. But, here we had it. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Something has happened to this man. He's gone from being a zealot for Judaism, persecuting, arresting, and even being party to the death of Christians. Now he is boldly and fearlessly preaching Jesus Christ everywhere he goes. Notice what it says. At once he began to preach, verse 21, all those who heard him were astonished because they knew who he was. This man was famous. Everybody in Damascus knew who Paul was, and they were all astonished, saying, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name. He had a reputation. And hasn't he come here to take them, the Christians, as prisoners to the chief priests? His life was completely changed, and everybody knew it. He had gone from being a persecutor to being a preacher literally overnight. His life completely changed, and now he's testifying everywhere that Jesus is the Son of God. But, as I mentioned, notice persecution rapidly arose in Damascus from the Jews there who wanted to kill Saul. Isn't that interesting? the same Jews that just a few days earlier were on the same side with Saul, they now want to kill him. Why? Verse 22, it says, Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Because of his expertise in the Old Testament scriptures, and now because he's filled with the Holy Spirit, he begins to show them from the Old Testament scriptures, from Moses, from the Psalms, from the prophets, everywhere in the Old Testament, he was proving to them that Jesus is the Christ. And many of the Jews there, they would have embraced what Saul was teaching them, but many would also have been, just like the Jews we've seen throughout the book of Acts, jealous, envious, threatened, and because of that, verse 23, 
It says, And many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. The Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan, and day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. These were not empty death threats. They were planning on killing this man. They wanted to snuff him out, just like he had wanted to snuff out Stephen and all the other followers of Jesus Christ. But now Saul has loyal followers in Damascus, and verse 25 says, But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall, and of course, enabling him to escape from Damascus and from the angry Jews that wanted to kill him. He would later write about this in his letter to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 11, where he lists all the things that he suffered for Christ. He mentions this one uh, in 2 Corinthians 11, how he had to be lowered through uh, the wall in a basket <laughs> to avoid being killed by these Jews. In verses 26 to 28, it says, After leaving Damascus, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. My goodness, this guy really had a reputation. He had been a terror to the church. Remember, we read words like breathing out slaughter, breathing out murderous threats. He was like a madman, obsessed with persecuting, imprisoning, and even putting to death Christians. So, understandably, when they hear that he's claiming to be a Christian now, many of them would have been very suspicious. Uh, we're not really sure if this guy's one of us now. They were still very much afraid that maybe this was just a ploy to get them, to arrest them, and have them put to death. So even when he tries to join the disciples in Jerusalem, it says they were afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But, enter again Barnabas. We're going to wait until a little further on in our study to really talk at length about Barnabas. But he's a, a, a very interesting man, and had some really beautiful qualities. Remember, uh, his the name given to him means son of encouragement. And that tells us a lot about the spirit that this man had working in his life. And we certainly see that here. And very early on, it's hard to explain except for the fact that it was the Holy Spirit that joined the spirits of Barnabas and Saul together. And God will do that in your life and mine. He will join us to the body of Christ, 
but he will join you to specific members in a very profound and meaningful way. And you may not even be able to understand it, but you know that God joined you. And we can see that evidenced here already. Barnabas just had a special love for Saul, and he was able to discern he's not a false believer or a false apostle. He was able to discern immediately this guy's the real deal. He heard him preaching Christ, and he knew he had really been saved, and he had discernment to recognize that. And so Barnabas took Saul, brought him to the apostles in Jerusalem, and convinced them that Saul really was a true disciple. It says, Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles, He told them how Saul, on his journey, had seen the Lord, and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So, Barnabas was both familiar with Saul's testimony, his encounter with Christ on his way to Damascus, and he was also quite familiar with his bold and fearless preaching while he was there in Damascus. Let's go back and look at several references to this in the portion that we've read in Acts 9. Uh, It says in verse 22, Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. And of course, we already saw in verse 20, at once he began to preach in the synagogue that Jesus is the Son of God. Um, When he preached in Damascus, it was with great boldness. It was fearless preaching that Paul was giving to the people there. Notice further down in verse 29, um, even when he got to Jerusalem, he talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. And so there's a power, there's a boldness in this man's life, even in the face of death threats. He goes on preaching Jesus Christ. And so that caught Barnabas' attention. And so he tells all that to the apostles in Jerusalem. I want you to see what a key figure. Barnabas is in this story here. They were not ready to accept Paul into their fellowship. And these disciples and apostles in Jerusalem, let's not forget how gifted they were, they're full of the Holy Spirit, God's been using them mightily, and yet it says they were all afraid of him, not believing 
that he really was a disciple. It took Barnabas and his influence, because he had a lot of influence. He was a a man of great standing already in the Jerusalem church. And so he was able to use that influence positively. He personally took Saul, brought him to the apostles, and defended him. He told about his experience on the road to Damascus and how he had heard him preaching Jesus fearlessly in the synagogues in Damascus. And so it says in verse 28, So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem. Here it comes again, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Boldly in the name of the Lord. Something has really caught fire inside of this man Saul. The same fire he had to persecute Christians has now been turned on to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I often tell people this. When I see people that are really passionately, zealously, fervently against Christianity, I mean really coming against Christians and persecuting, maybe even beheading them and killing them, that can be a good sign. Because when God gets a hold of that person, he can turn all that zeal and passion around in the other direction, and they'll be just as zealous for the cause of Christ, fearlessly, boldly preaching Jesus, unafraid of death, unafraid of anybody's threats. And so, we're beginning to already get a little glimpse into the kind of ministry Paul the Apostle is going to have. Boldly preaching Christ, uh, fearlessly declaring to both Jews and Gentiles, Jesus is the Son of God, and yes, he's already stirring up trouble. Everywhere he's going, there's also opposition and persecution. And as I mentioned, we're going to hold off until a little later on and return again to this man Barnabas, because he's a key figure in the early church. And he doesn't quite get the credit that he deserves. We often hear a lot about Peter We hear a lot about Paul, not so much about Barnabas, but I think I'll be able to show you some amazing character traits that were in this man's life. One of them you see right here. He was willing to risk his own neck, his own reputation, with all of the apostles and elders and disciples in Jerusalem sticking up for Paul, defending him and introducing him to the disciples there, as one of us. He's one of us now. So, um, in Acts 9 here, it says in verses 28 and 29 again, So Saul stayed with them, moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. So, (laughs) 
Here again, he's preaching, he's stirring up trouble, they want to kill him in Jerusalem now. And so verse 30, when the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. It has begun. The ministry of Paul and also the persecution that Jesus promised he would now be on the receiving end of. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now, we get another one of these sort of an update report from Luke in verse 31. We've seen how from time to time he pauses in the book of Acts and gives us sort of one of these summaries of what's been happening. And that's what verse 31 does for us. It says, Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. Saul is no longer persecuting the church. He's gone from persecutor to preacher. And so, for a period of time, the churches in Judea, Galilee, and Samaria have entered a time of great peace. There's not a lot of turmoil, not a lot of persecution, and so it's a time of real growth and establishment. I like what it says here. The church. He doesn't say the church is. The church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. It's one church. Sure, lots of local congregations, lots of local elders, lots of local disciples, but it's one unified church. The church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged, note these words, by the Holy Spirit. We've mentioned this over and over again. We could call the book of Acts the Acts of the Holy Spirit. It's the emphasis from beginning to end is on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit birthed the church. The Holy Spirit is raising up believers, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers, elders... The Holy Spirit is strengthening and encouraging the church, and it's bringing growth. It says the church grew in numbers. So here we have another one of these progress reports. The church is growing, the church is being strengthened, the church is being encouraged, and one last but very significant detail, living in the fear of the Lord. Interesting that Luke mentions that from time to time. A lot was said about the fear of the Lord 
back in chapter 5, particularly after the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira, great fear came upon the whole church. And that's not a bad thing. The fear of the Lord, we are told, is good. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord causes us to keep walking the straight and narrow. We uh, turn away from evil. We embrace righteousness and truth. We hunger and thirst for holiness and for the presence of God. So one of the secrets to their growth is revealed here. They were living in the fear of the Lord. It doesn't say that once in a while they came to church and they got scared because of something the preacher said. No, they were living in the fear of the Lord. Living means it was 24-7. Whether the preacher was around or not, whether they were in a church service or not, the fear of the Lord was very much operating in their lives. And that's why the church was strengthened, the church was growing, the church was encouraged by the Holy Spirit. Now, we come to one last section in Acts chapter 9, and this is where we'll be tying things up tonight. And interestingly, the focus shifts again from Saul back to Peter. We haven't heard much about Peter for a while, and now we're not going to hear much about Saul again until we get to Acts chapter 13. So for the remainder of Acts 9, Acts 10, 11, and 12, the camera turns again back to Peter. And once we get to Acts 13, Paul takes center stage, and also Barnabas. But we won't hear anything more about Peter after that. But here we go, Acts 9, verses 32 to 43, we return our attention again to the ministry of Peter. It's not like, you know, Peter was sitting on the sidelines for a couple of years while Paul was out ministering. Both of them are ministering, but Luke, being very careful to give details, and he likes to organize things in a way that the information flows nicely, he shifts from one scene to another scene, and then back to the first scene. So now we're going to shift from Paul and focus once again on Peter. Acts 9 32-43. As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the saints in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, a paralytic, who had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and take care of your mat. Immediately Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which, when translated, is Dorcas, who was always doing good and helping the poor. 
About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in the upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, Please come at once. This is not that far, by the way, from Jerusalem. A few miles journey. So, word is sent for Peter. Please come at once. Verse 39. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called the believers and the widows and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. And of course, you want to tuck that away in the back of your memory, because we're going to return to Peter in Joppa, in the house of this man, Simon, in the next chapter. But, we finish Acts 9, turning our attention back to Peter in his ministry, with two more notable, amazing miracles. The healing of a paralytic, we've seen that already, in Peter's ministry, at the Gate Beautiful, And here again, it's another instantaneous, total, amazing, notable healing miracle that takes place. And probably even more notable is, for the first time in the book of Acts, we find one of the apostles raising a dead person back to life. Jesus, of course, did it in his earthly ministry, this is the first record we have of this taking place in the book of Acts. So, let's look very briefly at these two final miracles that are described for us. It says that when Peter came to this place called Lydda, he found this man named Aeneas, a paralytic who had been bedridden for eight years. You know, often the scriptures give us these details uh, of how long a person had been in that condition. A woman had an issue of blood for 12 years. The woman bent over for 18 years, uh, we read in the Gospels. And sometimes, like the cripple at the gate, beautiful, when you do the math, He had been in that condition for almost 40 years. All of this is to emphasize the greatness of the miracle that took place 
in an instant. Sadly, they had been like that for many, many years, suffering in that condition, but to highlight the power of God and the instantaneous healing miracle that takes place, he had been like this for eight years. All Peter says is, Jesus Christ heals you, get up and take care of your mat. Immediately, immediately, immediately. I think we saw the word instantaneously in Acts 3 with the crippled man there. Same thing. Immediate, total, instantaneous healing. Aeneas got up. And something we've talked about several times before, and we're going to keep seeing this throughout the book of Acts, the importance of miracles, not just for the recipient of the miracle, but to set a platform for the preaching of the gospel that many, many more people can be brought to Christ. That is certainly the case here because of the next verse. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Wow, what a testimony. This should stir us up. And I want to take a moment here to try to stir you up. This should stir us up to cry out to God. Fast and pray if we have to. Lord, stir up the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the church. Confirm your word with signs and wonders and miracles. If Peter needed it, if Paul needed it, how much more we need it in our modern day. Miracles, signs, and wonders. Paul told the Corinthians, I don't want to come to you with fancy speeches and clever theological explanations. I want to come to you in the demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit, so that your faith will not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And that should be our desire also. We don't want people putting their faith in us. We can't do anything for them. Who do we think we are? We can't help anybody. We want people putting their faith in God, putting their faith in the power of God. How are they going to do that? When the power of God is manifested and they can see. Please note with me once again in verse 35, all those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him. They saw the miracle. They all knew this guy just like the, the cripple at the gate beautiful was known by everyone. That's why his instantaneous healing stirred up everybody. And that's why the healing of this man Aeneas caused the whole town of Lydda, the whole town of Sharon, to turn to the Lord. If we want to see not only individuals, but whole families, whole neighborhoods, whole schools, whole towns and cities turn to the Lord, we're going to need the power of God.
just as Peter and the others in the early church needed the power of God. You can trace this right through the book of Acts. Every time they went into a new place, whether it was Samaria or Lydda and Sharon, God manifested his power through miraculous signs and wonders. He got the people's attention and he gained their trust and their faith. All who saw him turned to the Lord. That's the ultimate goal. When God works a miracle, sign, or a wonder, it's so that more people might turn to the Lord. And so this healing miracle was used by the Holy Spirit to expand, to extend, to enlarge the gospel net. Many, many more people now are turning to the Lord just because of one miracle, one miracle, two whole towns turn to the Lord. Now, in a neighboring town, in the town of Joppa, there was this sweet lady, Dorcas, or Tabitha. (coughs) She was full of good works. She had been a real blessing to many, many people in Joppa. And the scriptures are very clear. Verse 37, she became sick and died. Sometimes bad things seem to happen to good people. Those people who have the most faith get sick. Those people who preach healing and lay hands on the sick and they get healed, they are attacked in their own physical body. And we could go on and on with that. And, and I've been studying this out recently. Um, I could count probably on the fingers of my two hands uh, the people who most impress me, people who are in my personal circle of Christian friends and associates who have a real, I mean a real, dynamic faith in God. They know God. They know the power of God. They know the Word of God. And without fail, every single one of them either has been or presently is being tested with fire. I mean real tests Real trials are going on in their lives. And you know, you, you sit back and you begin to observe this and you notice a pattern. It's the good people. It's the ones who are really seeking the Lord and pressing in to get closer to Christ. They seem to be the ones with the worst troubles. But then we're reminded, and we'll see this later in this very book, the book of Acts, when the apostles strengthened and encouraged the believers, in the very next breath they say, oh, by the way, through many hardships, we enter the kingdom of heaven. So yes, trials, tests, they come often to the best and the strongest in faith. So 
Here we have this beautiful saint named Tabitha. She becomes sick and she dies. And they've prepared her body uh, for the funeral. And for some reason, the disciples there in Joppa, they have enough faith to call Peter. Peter, come here. <clears throat> come at once. We need you. And Peter went. When he arrived there, he was taken up to the funeral parlor, and all the widows stood around him, crying, showing him all the robes and clothes that Dorcas had made for all of them. She was a woman full of good works, just like the Bible says we should be. Her life had been a life of serving others, doing good for others, and understandably, they're all crying and weeping now over her loss. Verse 40, Peter sent them all out of the room. He learned this from Jesus. <clears throat> Jesus would often send people out when he was praying, especially for dead people. One explanation that is often given, he wanted to get all the unbelief out of the room. He only wanted believers in there. In this case, he sends everybody out. In Jesus' case, uh, he would often just have his closest, Peter, James, and John, stay with him in the room. He would send everybody else out. Peter sends everybody out of the room. Then he gets down on his knees and he prays. Turning toward the dead woman. Yep, imagine this. What faith these men had. Turning toward the dead woman. He said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand helped her to her feet, and then he called the believers and the widows and presented her to them alive. First instance in the book of Acts of a dead person being raised back to life. And here again, this was a great benefit not only to Tabitha, but to all of her friends and uh, Christian brothers and sisters in the church there in Joppa, but beyond that, here again, God is setting a stage for the preaching of the gospel, for the enlarging of the gospel net. For listen what it says. This, meaning the raising back to life of sick and dead Tabitha, this became known all over Joppa. I would think so. I would expect that news to travel very, very fast when somebody who has died of sickness <clears throat> is not only brought back to life, but back to health. So really, 
two miracles have taken place here. She's healed and she's raised back to life. This became known all over Joppa and many people believed in the Lord. Side note, let us keep reminding ourselves Luke was a physician. These miracles particularly impacted him because he knew as a human physician his own limitations. Doctors do what they can, but they're very limited. They can't prevent certain illnesses and they certain can't prevent certainly can't prevent death in most cases. And yet here he is seeing and observing this amazing miracle, a dead woman raised back to life. <clears throat> Many people believed in the Lord and Peter stayed on in Joppa for the next chapter in the book of Acts. And that's where we will begin next time. Let me finish this up quickly with a summary here. In Acts 8 and 9, we saw the gospel going to Judea, Samaria, and the persecution spreading far and wide, even as far away from Jerusalem as Damascus, Syria, about 150 miles away from Jerusalem. But time and again, the sovereign God shows he is always in control. He can use persecution to scatter his people and enlarge the church. He can also save the persecutor, Saul of Tarsus, and make him a mighty apostle. The church continues to grow and expand. It has now uh, moved throughout Judea, Samaria. The Ethiopians, remember, have now received the gospel through the Ethiopian eunuch that Philip met out in the desert. Syria has now begun to receive the gospel, and soon Peter will be taking it to the Gentiles, and then it is going to explode to the uttermost ends of the earth. A couple of other things we just finished talking about. God uses miracles, signs, and wonders to bring many to faith in Jesus Christ. He also uses ordinary people, like Philip the deacon and Ananias, the disciple who was sent to minister to Saul of Tarsus. This should be a great encouragement to all of us. God uses simple people. He likes to use little, ordinary people. And of course, Saul of Tarsus is about to take center stage, but not just yet. We've turned our attention now back to Peter, and will continue to do so in chapters 10, 11, and 12, which will be the subject of part 7, our next part in this 12-part series that we're doing on the book of Acts. Finally, if you're following in the notes, on page 104, I've 
put together a list here. And I think this is important for us to study over and to consider very deeply. From Paul's conversion, I've listed here seven marks or evidences of a true Christian conversion. Now, I don't mean to sound critical, and I'm not trying to be, but I think if you look at these seven points, and if you look at the transformation that took place in Saul of Tarsus, this was a profound experience. And it was marked with evidences or fruit. We can see the change that took place in this man. This was not just Saul repeating some sinner's prayer. Repeat this little prayer after me. Okay, now you're saved. Now you're born again. Now you're filled with the Holy Spirit. You're done. You're a member of the church. I'm sorry. Um, that sometimes bothers me that we're trying to reduce salvation to a little one-line prayer that somebody repeats over the telephone or over the TV. Maybe they get saved. Maybe they don't. But real Christian conversion is a radical, radical transformation. And let's look at the seven marks or evidences of a true Christian conversion, all of which we can identify in what happened to Saul of Tarsus. Number one, he met Jesus and heard his voice. He didn't just read you know, a gospel tract, or go to a Sunday school class. Those are all good things. Don't misunderstand me. He met Jesus, and he heard his voice. Ultimately, you and I are not saved until we have a personal encounter with the risen Christ. We must meet him. We must have a personal experience, a personal encounter with him. That's why the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's a personal encounter, a personal experience. Secondly, immediately Paul fell to the ground. In other words, he humbled himself. He was brought down from his high horse. Now we don't know for sure if he was riding on a horse. Some people often talk about Paul being knocked from his horse. We don't know what he was on, but he certainly fell to the ground. And it signifies he was humbling himself. And in what we saw ensuing after that encounter with Christ, he became instantly humble. He went from an angry, wild man persecuting Jesus and his church to saying, Lord, what will you have me to do? In other words, his humbling himself brought him to a place where he wanted to know God's will for his life, and he was ready and willing to obey him. We saw that tonight. At once, he went out and began to preach. More about that a little further down. Thirdly, Acts 9-11, we saw 
During those three days of blindness and fasting, he began to pray. Who told him to pray? We don't know. It just happened. And I will maintain, when you have truly been saved, you don't need anybody to tell you to pray. You will pray. You don't need anybody to tell you to humble yourself and seek God. Something inside you starts to cry out, God, what is your will for my life? What do you want to do with me? Fourthly, another sign that he was truly converted, he was baptized in water and he received the Holy Spirit. These are all things that I've listed here that we've seen in Acts 9. I'm just summarizing what we've already talked about. Fifthly, another sign that he was truly converted, he immediately united himself in fellowship with other believers. He didn't just stay at home and be a Lone Ranger Christian. He wanted to be in fellowship with other believers. Number six, we studied this tonight, at once he began to preach Christ. He began to testify to others and to preach to them, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You can't preach to others that Jesus Christ is the Son of God if you don't believe that. If you're not convinced that Jesus is the Son of God, then you're not saved yet. And as soon as you are convinced of that, you cannot keep quiet. He began to testify and preach Christ. And finally, number seven, he grew in grace and strength. He was becoming more and more powerful. And so, Let's summarize once again the seven marks of true Christian conversion. Number one, he met Jesus and heard his voice. He had a personal encounter with Christ. Number two, he humbled himself and longed to know, God, what is your will for my life? Thirdly, he began to pray. Fourthly, he was willing to be baptized in water immediately and receive the Holy Spirit. Fifth, he united in fellowship with other believers. Sixth, he began to testify and boldly preach Jesus Christ everywhere he went. And finally, number seven, he grew. He wasn't stagnant. He wasn't static. He was increasing in power. He was becoming more and more bold more and more powerful with each passing moment. So, next time we'll move right on into part 7, and here's where we come to phase 3 of Acts 1-8. Remember, Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. <coughs> In Acts 10... It will be Peter who officially takes the gospel to the Gentiles. And as I mentioned, Acts 10, 11, and 12 will be the subject of part 7, and Peter will be the central figure in those three chapters. Once we finish that, 
all of the attention shifts back to Paul the Apostle. Alright, that completes part six. Let's close in prayer as we finish things up tonight. Sorry I went a little bit over, but I didn't want to leave any of this hanging till next time. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, O God, for showing us in the life of Saul of Tarsus, better known now as Paul the Apostle, you can do anything. You can take a madman who's persecuting and chasing down the Christians, even uh, breathing out murderous threats to kill them. You can take a man like that and in an instant convert him. I like that word, convert. We talk about Christian conversion. You converted him into a totally different man because he was born again. And Lord, this is what salvation is all about. It's about conversion. It's about an encounter with Jesus Christ. It's about a total, absolute transformation, a complete turnaround. And God, we are praying that we can witness many, many people converting to Christ, turning to the Lord, being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ in these last days. God, I pray that you would bring power upon the church. Bring power into each and every one of our lives. Stir up the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Manifest your power in these last days with healing signs and wonders, with gifts of the Holy Spirit. You told us that we would do greater works than you did when you were here on this earth, O God. Heal the sick, cast out devils, and yes, raise the dead, that whole neighborhoods, whole towns, whole schools, whole universities, whole cities can turn to the Lord as we've seen here in the book of Acts. God, we praise you that you have all power, all authority. You are sovereign Lord in heaven and on earth. God, in the time remaining, move mightily throughout the earth by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, let that gospel net gather many, many souls in before the door of grace is shut once and for all. God, we praise you. We thank you for each and every one that has joined us tonight on this Bible study line. I pray that the Word of God would be engrafted deeply into their hearts, minds, souls, spirits, and Lord, stir them up as you did with Saul of Tarsus to preach Christ, to testify Christ, to be used by your Holy Spirit to bring others to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We surrender to you. We place our lives in your hands, 